Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we have you to come to, that you are our source of security, you are our source of stability, you are our source of happiness and real meaning in life, that to seek for security, ultimate security and stability and happiness in any other source is the definition of idolatry, that we are to rest our hope in you, and that is the only basis for real joy and happiness and stability in life. Father, there are many crises and there are many challenges that we face on a day-to-day basis, and there are surprising uh, crises that do occur in our lives from time to time, and the only way in which we can weather those storms is when we have prepared our souls and strengthened our souls with the truth of your word, that on the basis of your character, we can have a sense of stability and happiness and hope, even in the midst of darkness, despair, and even when things are not going the way we would expect. And so, Father, we pray today as we study your word that the truths that we study, the doctrines we study, will challenge us, will strengthen us, and that we will gain a fresh hope in our walk with you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We never know when we're going to face a crisis. We never know whether the crisis or the challenge that comes our way is going to be something that is just a minor irritant, something that will be cleared up maybe in a matter of days, as I think some people thought this uh, BP spill out in the Gulf might be, or whether it's going to actually turn into something that will uh, perhaps wreck all of our expectations and hopes and dreams in life. Uh, we never know what will happen if we, when we wake up in the morning, what the day might bring. Some days bring us joy and happiness and things are relatively stable and we feel like we have accomplished something and gone forward. But there are those times in life when we face certain situations and things happen. There are storms of life, whether they're the literal storms that come along through a hurricane or tornado or a flood, the rather natural disasters that seem to have uh, peppered the news a lot lately with various storms and floods from Arkansas up to Michigan down to the hill country of Texas, or whether we're talking about uh, the potential of 
horrendous uh, hurricanes that may hit us this summer. I think that um, they're predicting a rather strong hurricane season this year. And for those of us who have seen uh, Katrina and Rita and Ike hit the upper Texas coast and Louisiana coast over the last decade, we know that um, it's not as calm as it was back in the uh, 70s and 80s when we hardly saw uh, any storms come our way. So we never know what may happen. The economy of the world, not to mention the economy of the United States, that is stretched beyond any reasonable limit with the debt so exorbitant that it's unreasonable to expect that we'll uh, pay it off and have really a solvent currency, puts all of us in a realm of jeopardy financially that our hopes and dreams for retirement, hopes and dreams for financial stability uh, could disappear, literally disappear overnight through various things that can transpire, through uh, instabilities in the market, through war, uh, through uh, disasters that we can't imagine. I mean, we would not expect or have thought of disasters like the, like the oil spill in the Gulf or the, um, the volcano in Iceland that shut down air traffic in Europe for about a week or so or other things like this just don't normally come into our way of thinking when we think about uh, disasters or crises. So we have to ask a question, and that is on what do we really base our hopes and our expectations and our security, our sense of stability, because any of these things can and do come along in the course of our lives and in the course of other people's lives, not to mention the more personal things that can occur by just going to the doctor and being told that you're now in stage three cancer or stage four cancer and there's not much that can be done about it, or coming home to find out that due to a gas leak your house burned down, or many of the other things that can happen. I hope everybody's feeling a lot better now. But we don't like to think about these things. We are gender, people tend to be very optimistic, maybe too optimistic, and we think that everything is going to go along because we are products, I believe, of a culture that has created an unrealistic view of life. We in America have the privilege of living in the most affluent, prosperous society that has existed in the history of the human race. We have more free time, we have more luxuries, and we have the luxury of more disposable income and disposable time than any people in all of history. We often delude ourselves into thinking that as things have been in the past, so they will be in the future, and we live in a culture that because at the root of the worldview that dominates American culture that has denied the reality that the Bible talks about of living in a fallen world, an imperfect world, a world that has been placed under the curse and judgment of sin, that we think that, that the culture, by rejecting those ideas, thinks that somehow we can find security and stability if we can just control the environment, if we can just control the, the political, social uh, environment, if we can just control and prevent war, then somehow we can actually have stability and security in life. And when you live in a pipe dream like that, you will be radically disappointed. 
This, I think, is evident throughout our culture that there are people who so many of us live in the realm of unrealistic expectations. And when we live in in a world of unrealistic expectations, then when those expectations are not met, there is crushing defeat and disappointment and anger and resentment. I think all of this feeds the uh, cultural anger that we see, the suppressed anger that comes boiling up every now and then, is because for the most part when people reject any kind of absolute truth and any sort of absolute knowledge and a God that can provide real security, not in circumstances, not in the details of life, then they must put their hopes their dreams, their sense of security in somehow controlling the details of life. And who's better to control those details of life than the government, right? We just pass a law. We just get the right person in power, and they can control things. I mean, there are many things that can be said about the President of the United States, whether it is President Obama today or whether it was President Bush several years ago, but to place upon either one of them an expectation that they can control the consequences of a natural disaster or a disaster like BP, I think, goes beyond all realms of expectation. That is not the role of the president. Now, there are things that a government can do within a limited structure, but the government cannot control the weather. The environment cannot ultimately be controlled by government dictum, or by charismatic leaders. And too often in history, people have put their hopes and dreams in governments and in empires and in personalities that somehow, if we just get this person in power, if we just get this situation under control, then we can have real stability and real security. Now, that is what lies at the heart of the challenge that we read about, and we'll study the next couple of weeks in our passage in Second. Kings chapter 18. So turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Kings 18, and we are beginning the study of the Assyrian crisis that comes to the southern kingdom of Judah in 701 uh, B.C. And I'm going to begin with the introduction uh, this morning, which I'm entitling Security, False Utopic Dreams Versus the Faithful God. If you X out the second part of that and get rid of the faithful God, then all you can do is put your ultimate hopes for security and stability and happiness and meaning in life in the creation somewhere, which is the biblical definition of idolatry, uh, expecting God's creation to do what only God can do. And everything in God's creation changes. I mean, change is the one thing that we can count on that never changes. There's always change, except for God. God being outside of creation, he is the one who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, uh, Exodus 20 tells us. And therefore, he alone can have stability, and he alone can provide the kind of, of certainty that the creation itself cannot provide. This is why when we talk, speak of God's character, we often use the word immutable. God never changes. In the Old Testament, there is a, a word that is used that has, depending upon its, its uh, endings and its various uh, cognates, 
can mean faithfulness, it can mean truth, and it can mean stability and certainty because the root of that word has to do with that which provides an absolute unshakable foundation. And that is the Hebrew word, the, the noun emmet for truth, or also amen, which is where we get our word amen, uh, has to do with that. It relates in that form to belief. It is an objective belief in an objective reality based on the character of God. And so we can either put our hopes for security in man or in the institutions of man or individual human beings or some sort of utopic ideal, which is what you have in Marxism and socialism and various other isms that uh, emphasize some sort of uh, societal perfection, and that all denies at its very core the reality of evil. Now, that is something that's very interesting. When I was uh, down in uh, <clears throat> Puerto Vallarta this last week, I had the opportunity to catch up on a lot of reading. There's a number of people in the congregation who give me lots of things to read, and I just usually do not have the opportunity to do that. And one of these particular editorials had to do with evil, and it was written by an atheist. But he is making the argument that you can't really talk about evil if you don't have a God. Now, I thought that was an interesting recognition by, by, uh, by an atheist. However, he goes, what he proposes for a solution was a little screwy. But he's right. He's right in his recognition of the problem. If you don't have an absolute God of absolute righteousness, then you don't have a basis for talking about evil because you don't have an external reference point by which you can define good or evil. Good and evil are defined in Scripture from the vantage point of an absolute character of God. And evil is defined in Scripture foundationally, not in terms of some action that goes beyond the norm of bad things that people do. Evil is defined in terms of disloyalty to God. That's why as you read through the Kings and you read that so-and-so did evil in the sight of the Lord, it always goes back to idolatry, an act of disloyalty towards God and putting your hopes and dreams and faith in something other than God. This is ultimately what brought the divine discipline upon the northern kingdom of Israel as well as the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, we are at a time here in uh, 2 Kings 18 that is around 701 B.C. That is pretty much a hard date that we have for the uh, invasion of the uh, southern kingdom of Judah by Sennacherib, who was the ruler of the Assyrian Empire at that particular time. Now, 701 is coming to the end of the 8th century B.C., and it is at the end of the... 7th century B.C., or 605, just short of 100 years later, that Nebuchadnezzar, the ruler of the next major empire, the Babylonians, will come in for his first major conquest of the southern kingdom in 605. There are going to be three basic invasions from the Babylonians, the last one in 586, which is when the Babylonian uh, empire uh, conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, destroyed the first temple, the Solomonic temple, 
and uh, exiled numerous people within the southern kingdom of Judah and deported them back to to Babylon. Daniel went with the first group in 605. Ezekiel goes out with the second group in about 596, and then many others went in 586. So it's not long. It's a little over 100 years before you're going to see this this crisis that, that culminates in the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah. At that time... Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, will write a lament over the destruction of Jerusalem and the defeat of the southern kingdom. Now, the principles that he outlines in Lamentations 3, particularly a couple of verses there, are just as appropriate to our time of study with Hezekiah. So I want to start by way of introduction, just reminding you of these principles in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 uh, through 26. We read there, this is the key to having a mental attitude of stability and security that is not in things, 401k plans, not in uh, secure employment, not in your possession or paid off house or any of the things that we think will give us security. But the focus is in the Lord. This I recall to mind, Jeremiah says, in the midst of having lost everything in the destruction of Jerusalem. It says, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. No crisis is too big for the grace of God. No crisis, no catastrophe is too big for confidence and hope in God. So he says, I, This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. The Lord's mercy, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassion fails not. Even in the midst of judgment, notice there's no anger, there's no resentment, there's no bitterness towards God. Rather, the focus is on his grace and his compassion, that even in judgment, God is compassionate, because the purpose of discipline is always restoration. And that was the promise that God gave again and again and again through the prophets of Israel, that they would be restored to the land. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, that is, his compassion. His mercy. Great is your faithfulness. And that word translated faithfulness is the same as a form of the word that is also translated truth and is related to that word for objective belief. It indicates something that is grounded on that which is unshakable, that which is indestructible. And so the focus here is on the faithfulness of God, which is the foundation for our hope. It's not in government. It's not in human institutions. It's not in universal health care. It's not in Social Security. It's not in a strong military. Hope is always in God ultimately, not that some other things might not be beneficial in a temporal short-term manner, but it is ultimately it is the character of God that matters. Jeremiah goes on to say, The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now this is the same mentality of young King Hezekiah. We have 
studied his focus on spiritual things in the last several lessons, focusing primarily on that which is revealed in Second Chronicles chapters 28, 29, 30, and we didn't get into 31, but that, just, that chapter simply summarizes the blessings that God brought during the reign of Hezekiah for the southern kingdom of Judah. We read that what prepares them ultimately for the crisis that comes in 701 is the spiritual revival in the true biblical sense of that term, spiritual rededication to God by the nation under the leadership of Hezekiah back when he first became king in 7, uh, 715. He prepared the nation first by bringing, cleansing the temple, reopening the temple. The people responded in obedience by destroying the uh, idols, by destroying the temples to the idols and all of these alternate worship sites. In other words, what has to happen for a culture to shift is that it's not just an academic shift in belief, but you have to destroy the thought systems, the worldviews, the value systems, the ethical systems that are the outgrowth of those false worldviews. And this is the import and significance of the people in the southern kingdom going out and destroying these temples. They were wiping out their thoughts. This is the same idea that the Apostle Paul expresses in Second Corinthians 10, that we are to take every thought captive for Christ. Uh, we are destroying fortresses and every lofty thing lifted up against the word of God. It is ultimately a combat between thought systems. Now, this I'm saying this because this sets the stage for understanding the real battle, the real core foundational issue in the battle that takes place between Sennacherib and the Assyrians and Hezekiah and the Jews. Because when we get into the latter part of this this chapter and we get into the section dealing with what the uh, leaders and uh, representatives of Sennacherib say, the, uh, uh, the Rabshaka and the uh, other leaders, they come and they present a case to the leaders of Israel, and they say, how can you trust Hezekiah? How can, he, he, he destroyed the other gods, didn't he? They, they can't save you. In fact, the other gods, these other religious beliefs, never did anything for anybody. We, we've wiped out all these other cultures. We've defeated them. Their gods didn't help them. So your God's not, not going to help you. I mean, it's the same basic argument we hear all the time. How do you know Christianity is true? It's just like every other religion, and all of that is, is as Mark said, it's the opiate for the masses. You know, it really has no objective value. Religion is just something that is going to have subjective meaning uh, for you. And so you can't, what the, what, uh, the Rob Shaka was saying to the Jews was don't trust in God. Don't put your faith and hope in him. He can't deliver you. Of course, he will learn otherwise because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is just as real at that time as he was to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's the God who brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he is the God who is still in control of the history of mankind. And so we can trust in him. 
And so as we get into this, we saw the, the preparation of the people spiritually, the sacrifices, the consecration of the priesthood, and then the people are beginning to apply this in terms of Passover observance, and then later subsequent feast days in that first year of Hezekiah's reign, the people came together, they brought their offerings and their sacrifices, and First Chronicles 31 describes the abundance that came in. And it is abundant because, as God had promised within the Mosaic Law, that if uh, Israel would obey God, then he would bless them. He would bless them materially. He would prosper them financially. Their economy would be strong. And he would give them not only economic security, but also physical security in terms of their military. And we see that also in uh, chapter 18, that in the description of how God blessed Hezekiah. But let's look at the foundation first. In 2 Kings 18, verse 5, we read, He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. Hezekiah is superseded only by King David in the kings of the southern kingdom are in the kings of Israel. In the kings of the southern kingdom, if you start with with uh, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, and go through uh, the end, then Hezekiah is the greatest of all the kings of Judah in terms of his spirituality and his focus in the Lord. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him of all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. Now we have two important words to look at in these two verses. The next verse goes on to explain how it is that God can evaluate him with such a high mark as in verse 5. Verse 6 he says, for, it's an explanation, for he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments which the Lord had commanded Moses. And just as in the Old Testament, you have the, in Deuteronomy, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then that's demonstrated by keeping the commandments. The same is true in the New Testament. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. God doesn't change between the Testaments. Now, this first word that we see here is in yellow, I've highlighted in yellow, is the word trust. It is in a past tense form, but it is the Hebrew word batach, which is used many times in the Old Testament. But batach is a different focus on trust than, for example, the word for belief in amen. That refers to an objective belief in God, whereas this focuses more on a subjective aspect. Uh, there is uh, there are no clear cognates in or similar words in other languages other than in, in Arabic. There is a word batacha which has to do with something that is uh, stretched out or something that is tight, and gives the basic idea of something that is firm or something that is solid, something that is unshakable. That relates also to the foundational idea that is in the word amen or imuna, uh, that which gives stability. So in Hebrew, though, in the usage of the word batak, it focuses more on the subjective dimension of faith in that it provides a sense of well-being and security which results from having placed your confidence in something or someone that is unshakable. 
So it focuses not on the objective sense of believing God, but in the subjective result of that, in that it provides us with stability and security and confidence in times of crisis so that we do not fall apart, push the panic button, get all upset, but that we can relax and with, because our confidence is in God. It's interesting that when the rabbis translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek in the 2nd century B.C. in what is known as the Septuagint, they did not translate batach with the Greek word for belief, but rather they translated batak with the Greek word for hope. Now think about that. Why would you do that? Why would you take a word that we think of in terms of belief and translate it with hope? Because that brings out the essence of the idea in this subjective consequence or subjective view of of faith or trust here is that we can have confidence and be secure in our uh, in our lives, have real security, only because our hope is in God. Now, that Greek word elpis, which is uh, tra- the word for hope, focuses on a confident future expectation. There is a confidence there, a security there. So hope is not this, in the Bible, hope is not this, this wishy-washy uh, optimism uh, that we often think of that, uh, for example, with 40%, the prediction of 40% chance of rain every day this week, my wife is down on the beach in Puerto Vallarta thinking, I hope it really doesn't happen. You know, that's just wishful optimism. I hope it doesn't rain all week. I came down here to sit in the sun. See, that's how we normally think of hope, but that's not the biblical idea of hope. The biblical idea of hope is a confident certainty, an expectation of that things will occur a certain way. And you can only think that way if the one who has made the promise can actually guarantee its results. And we often try to put our hope in employers, in businesses. We, we work for a company. Is it solid? Does it have a good uh, uh, financial sheet? Does it have a good uh, profit loss statement? Can they really provide me with the kind of economic security and job security that I want? No, they can't. Don't, don't fool yourselves. Don't put your hope in man. The Scripture says that again. And again and again. So, so the trust that we're focusing on here with, with Hezekiah is that he has a confident hope. A, his security is not in anything temporal. That doesn't mean he didn't have a strong military. He did. It doesn't mean that he didn't fortify the walls. He did. We'll see the, he did other things as he saw the Assyrian threat progress. He dug a tunnel that some of us have walked through that was an aqueduct from the spring of Gihon uh, under the walls of the old city of Jerusalem so that the people would not have to go outside the walls uh, to get water. This was the main spring that provided water for the, uh, for the city of Jerusalem. It's re- usually referred to as Hezekiah's Tunnel. And um, he built that. So it doesn't mean that you don't take proper precautions. It doesn't mean that you don't, for example, leave your house and turn your uh, alarm system on. It doesn't mean that you go down and park your car in the highest auto theft area of Houston, which is the Galleria parking lot, and um, <clears throat> leave your keys in the in the uh, ignition. It means that ultimately you take normal procedures, 
but you your hope and confidence is ultimately in in God as the one who is the ultimate guarantor of your security. So he trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor were before him, for he held fast to the Lord. Now this is another interesting word. It's the Hebrew word dabak, which means to cleave to something. The most famous use of this word is at the end of Genesis chapter 2, where uh, Moses says, for this reason that uh, men are to leave their parents and cleave to their wife. It does have a sexual connotation in places, but in other places it just talks about loyalty and affection and binding oneself to someone else through a promise or a commitment. And Isaiah chapter or Jeremiah chapter 13 verse 11 states that the Lord caused the Israelites to cleave to him as well as Hezekiah's approved because uh, he held fast uh, to the Lord. He would not depart from the Lord. And so he kept his commandments, which the Lord had given to Moses. Now in verse 7, we're told, again, in summary statement, the Lord was with him. He prospered wherever he went. That is Hezekiah. He prospered in terms of the economy of the kingdom, because they were obedient to God. God was fulfilling, therefore, his promise of blessing, stated in Leviticus uh, 26, as well as in Deuteronomy chapters 28 to 30. And he also gave him victories over various uh, Philistine strongholds so that he gave greater uh, military security to the southern kingdom of, of, of Israel, I mean of Judah. So the Lord was with him, and he prospered wherever he went, and then we're told, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Now, what does that thought have to do with the previous thought? God prospered him. That seems to all be talking about one thing, and then all of a sudden, out of left field, you have this statement, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. You see, the reason he rebelled against the king of Assyria was because of his spiritual allegiance to God. And he realized that even though his father had paid tribute to Assyria and had leaned upon that and seeking as a source of security for the southern kingdom, that that wasn't their source of security. Their only source of security was God, and that it was a violation of the covenant with God to trust in Assyria or in Egypt or any other human source in order to provide them with a sense of security. Now, what this reminds us of is the fact that when we face certain crises, certain situations in life, ultimately the only source of stability has got to be in the Lord Jesus Christ, it has to be in God, it has to be in Scripture. We recognize that, just in summary of what I've said so far, is that we must recognize that there is a connection between hope and trust in the sense of security and in obedience and the consequences of divine blessing. The trouble is you can't measure these empirically. You can't go out and say, okay, if you're obedient to this degree, then God blesses you to that degree. What the Scripture says is that there is, if you are 
obedient to the Lord and walking with him, then he is your strength and he is your shield. He is the one who gives you protection. And no matter what else is happening around you, you are protected by the Lord. You're protected by that wall of fire. And it doesn't matter what else is going on. God is the one who protects you. And you can't measure that in a course on business. You can't measure that in a course on military strategy and tactics. And God promised Israel that if they were obedient to him, then 10,000 would put to flight 100,000. That's not because they had superior technology or they had superior strategy and tactics. It's because, if, as Paul states in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is on our side, then, then if, God, if all there is between us and the enemy is a spider's web, then that it becomes a brick wall with the power of God. But if we're not trusting in God, then... A brick wall has no more ability to protect us than a spider's web. The power of God is the, and his faithfulness, his character is the real source of our stability and our security. So as we look at this, we see that Hezekiah will face a personal challenge and a national challenge, and he has to use the same techniques, the same spiritual skills to face this crisis that we do in any crisis that comes our way. And it relates basically to two foundational doctrines. One is the sufficiency of God's power. That means God's power is all we need in order to protect us from any circumstance or situation in life. Now, that doesn't mean that if you go into battle or if there is a catastrophe that you won't lose your house. It doesn't mean that you won't lose your life. It doesn't mean that all of your hopes and dreams won't be dashed. What it means is that you as an individual and a person will be protected by God. And it may be God's plan for you not to realize those hopes and dreams and aspirations that you have had because his plan is something else. It's not your unrealistic expectations, but he has a destiny for uh, each one of us. So we have to trust in the sufficiency of God's power and, second, the faithfulness of God. But what happens so often is we seek security in money and the things that money can buy. We seek security in military. We seek security in uh, the police. We seek security in friends, in jobs, in technology. Uh, politically, governments seek security in alliances with foreign powers and various treaties and all these other things. None of that provides the security that only God can provide. There are certain key promises and principles that we have to remember and that were on Hezekiah's mind when he was young. For example, Psalm 146, verse 3 says, Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. In Jeremiah 17, verses 5 and 7, we have uh, two promises. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope, there's that confident expectation again, whose hope is the Lord. This was the way in which Hezekiah thought early on. He relied upon key promises as we can, such as Psalm 18, verse 2, that the Lord is my rock and my fortress 
and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust. That's Batak again, in whom I will place my security. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 1830 says, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who, once again, Batak, trust in him, who have that confident security in him. Psalm 91.2 says, I will save the Lord. He is my refuge and my fortress. My God, in him I will trust. Again, this is Batak. Verse 91.4 says, He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. That is, he is the one, the only one who protects and secures us. He alone can give us security because he never changes. Everything else in life changes. Everything in life is mutable. Everything that we tend to put our faith and hope in except for God, changes. Only God never changes, so he is the only one worthy of our faith and our trust. And so at this stage early in his life, Hezekiah recognized this principle that if God is for us, who can be against us? So that if God is our security, then whatever measures we've taken, God is going to protect us because he is our source of security but that if our source of security is in the things of this world, then that will always fail us, and we will always be disappointed. Our expectations will never be realized, and when those hard times come, whatever they may be, when the crisis comes, whether they're personal, whether they're national, whether they're natural, whatever they may be, the only thing that gives us hope, the only thing that gives us stability is God, because he alone is the one who is in charge. And so Hezekiah will learn this, but he forgets it. He has to be reminded. Next time when we come back, we'll see his failure and what comes out of that failure and then how he is able to face this crisis nationally and provide the leadership needed when a nation faces a crisis. And it's the same leadership needed when we face a crisis as individuals with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, you are our refuge and our strength. You are the one who gives us real security, and you are the only source of hope for us. Scripture tells us that the basic problem that we all face is that we, are, we fall short of your glory. Uh, the Old Testament says there is none righteous, no, not one. That all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. New Testament says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, we are not worthy in and of ourselves to have a relationship with you, to come into your presence. It's only when that sin problem is dealt with, as depicted in the Old Testament sacrifices, all the way to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, that sin has to be dealt with and be removed so that there can be peace with God, peace with you. And only on the basis of that peace can we have real security and real stability. Father, we pray that as we continue our study and as we continue to reflect upon the scripture that we studied this morning, that you would remind us that we need to take time to take stock of what we're really trusting in in life, what is the real source of our hope, and how would we handle situations if everything turned uh, against what we think will happen, and we lost all of those things that that we normally rely upon for security, that we survive because 
you are in control and nothing can change that. And because that you're, even though, as Job said in the Old Testament, even though uh, you slay us, yet we will trust you. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they would take this opportunity to do so. Jesus paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. He had you in mind so that all you need do is simply believe in him. It's not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.